I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams. Uh, not here with Andrew Paskin, but I've got a very special guest. This is effectively part two and a half of our 1996 recap. We're going to be doing a deep dive into that Parramatta splurge that we talked about in part two. And to do that, we've got a very special guest, our favourite Wallaby, founder of Gainline Analytics, returning to the show, Ben Darwin. How are you, Ben? I'm lovely. Thanks, Michael. Uh, th- thanks for agreeing to share some of your your expertise on this because it was a pretty crazy year for you know this one team in the midst of a very crazy era of rugby league and i wanted to start with that in general uh, we set it up a bit the first time we spoke to you but can you just go into a, a bit of what you do with gainline analytics so fundamentally, through my own experiences and through working in data analysis now since sort of about 2008, what I research is this notion of teams really can't punch above their weight or the notion of a team being a team of champions versus a champion team, all those kind of uh, uh, basic ideas that people have. And what we've come to this idea of is that the level of understanding between the participants of a team is much more indicative of their performance than the level of skill of the individuals. And the, the classic we found of this in, in rugby league was, for example, the Queensland State of Origin team from, say, 06 to 2014-15, where by objective measures, and, and everything we're doing is objective, it's not just an idea or a way of looking at all the, the performance. Queensland had, for example, six times the cohesion of New South Wales. And how that manifests itself particularly is in defence. And as we know with rugby league, the best defensive teams tend to win more often and certainly win the comp more often than the best attacking teams. And so if you can measure the amount of understanding between the players, you can actually start to predict and then drive uh, performance. So we work with clients um, in different sports, rugby league, rugby union, AFL, football, uh, as in soccer, cricket, um, around how to build understanding within their teams. And it's also a great way to start to understand performance over time um, and particularly this era, which had all so much chaos um, that it created lots of understanding, but mostly misunderstanding between players. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, you had new teams coming in, you had clubs folding, you had rep bands, you had players changing teams across the board. It must be a pretty interesting area of research in, in terms of that sort of work. Yeah, so... so if we talk about the archetype right now, which is the, the levels that the Melbourne Storm and, say, the Penrith Panthers are at in their, their level of understanding, you know, in this era, there was only a couple of teams close to that. Most teams were in a state of flux, and the components of that is is one expansion. And you think about now how the NRL, they're nervous about expanding one team. 
you know, they did four at one time off the back of another three in, so it was 88, they went three more and then they added another four more. Um, and, and the chaos that that caused and how those clubs were then put together, because it's not, it's not the new clubs. The new clubs are always going to struggle. It's what it does to the pre-existing club. The worst we've ever seen of that actually is uh, the netball a couple of years ago went from a five-team model in Australia to eight, which is like bringing in 12 new NRL clubs in one year. And so what that yeah. did to all the other teams was just completely flatten them. And so, you know, expansion will hurt some clubs more than the others. And if you particularly, you know, I hope you don't mind if I just jump into, but you know, things like the Chief getting everyone on the bus from from Newcastle and holding them all together, that affected their performance, you know, because it, it, forgive me if I'm wrong, that was all start taking place really towards the start of 96, wasn't it? That was, um, not, that was 95. Yeah, that so was, 95. So that was early so, 95. So that, that, that then reflected in 96, you know, Manly and Broncos were held together and so the clubs that were held together did brilliantly in 96. The clubs that weren't were basically back to being expansion clubs again. So you had probably of the 20 clubs, six that were built well, four to, four to six that were in the medium ranking and probably another eight that were basically either expansion clubs or back to being expansion clubs again. That's, that's very interesting. But it, it, it makes me think what in... 1996, we haven't got to it yet in, in our series, but we're going to be looking at the St. George team of 1996, which made a grand final off the, the back of an off-season of turmoil with players leaving and then, you know, not being able to leave because of the court judgment coming back, the coaches out. So you had like a lot of upheaval, but they managed to to go on and, and make a grand final, you know, against the odds. So um, I don't know if you looked at that team in particular. Yeah, I'm looking at them right now. And, you know, the, the thing to, to understand with this too is is it's about where you end up. So Cronulla didn't – so we'll, we'll use a number here without sort of giving away too much of the IP componentry. Um First things first, obviously, the round one was awarded to the ARL clubs. Am, am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's the that's their, their freebie sort of straight off the bat. You know, St. George were, um, I would put them in middle ground um, at the start of the year. So let's say of the 20 clubs, they were probably 12th, um, you know, for their for their numbers. Um, and they lost to Cronulla, who were in about probably a third higher than them at that point. So if we say the best is, say, a, a Brisbane or a Manly, they're, say, a three. St. George is at a one. Uh, let's say Parramatta is at, is at 0.5 or Crushes are at 0.3. Um, what St. George did over the season is they built their numbers up. We call it back-ending. Cronulla Sharks are probably the best example we've ever seen of this. They're 16. They won it. Is they started off 13th for cohesion and finished second. Uh, Canberra Raiders did it really beautifully in the, in the early 80s where they would just come home through a season. So... Even if you're losing and you remain stable through a season, your numbers will go up. So by the time that St. George got to uh, the finals, they were in the top eight um, for those numbers. And then what you have to do is you have to be, if you're an interstate club or a non-Sydney team, you have to be 20% better basically to win those away finals. So St. George got a Sydney-based final against Canberra and Canberra were not 20% better, so they won that. Um, they were against the Roosters, and their numbers were better than the Roosters, so they won that. Uh, and and then they uh, 
overperformed against um, against Norths until eventually they ran into a team in Manly that was 40% better than them in the grand final. That was it. And it uh, makes me think of the Broncos. That it, it just stood out to me when you mentioned that uh, the 20% better for the, for the uh, non-Sydney teams. And the Broncos won the two premierships in the early 90s, then had three years where they were, you know, like I, I think 96, they finished second. They, they were there or thereabouts for those three years, but always underperformed in the semifinals. Um, can, can you speak on that at all? Yeah, so so it's not that they're underperforming. It's just that that... Over the season, every, the Broncos are, used to be very similar to the Storm. The Storm have won 19 years in a row. They've won in round one. So the Storm were always very well set up at the start of the year. And generally, the well-run clubs are, are set up well. And then as the league goes on, everyone else starts to catch up. The Storm are actually less likely to win games as the season gets to the back half of it because they're almost 100% to win round one because everyone else catches up, if that makes sense, because they're all mm. getting time together they wouldn't usually get. So by the time the Broncos, you know, then come up against North Sydney and come up against Cronulla, North Sydney's numbers are better in their game against them in the, in the first round of the finals. And then they have to play Cronulla in Sydney and Cronulla's numbers are better. And so they, they won because um, there's also a number we use, which is called, uh, this what sounds right, called gap data. But basically what it's saying is you're only as strong as your weakest link. So whilst the Broncos had massive levels of cohesion across their entire organisation, it's also about the ability to stay uninjured, to have people playing in their appropriate positions. And so all it takes for Brisbane to be thrown off is one or two injuries at the wrong time of the year, and, uh, and they don't get it done. And, and like we said, with all of the interstate clubs, it just makes it so much harder for them to be successful. And it's the same with the AFL. You can't really win the comp outside of the top Four, unless you're a Sydney-based team in the NRL and a Melbourne-based team um, in, in the AFL, and, and Western Bulldogs are a, a great example of that. And also it works in the other way is that, for example, when West Tigers won the title in 05, they got three of their four finals were against interstate clubs. So they didn't have to be better. They just had to, to turn up and, and perform as they would. And, and one of this is around referees, and God bless all referees, but they're human beings, and... A lot of the research, particularly at EPL that was done around referees, shows that when you have big crowds, for every 10,000 more in the crowd, the referee will make one more decision towards the home team. Mm. So, you know, that's what we saw with COVID. When you took away crowds, you took away bias. And so the home and away didn't really seem to make too much of a difference um, in that scenario. So this is what those interstate clubs are fighting against, is that you're going to go to Sydney, you're going to play you know, a Sydney-based club and, you know, ostensibly for Cronulla, say, against Melbourne in 16, it's a home grand final for Cronulla because they're just going to have that many more people there. And, and you know, this is, this is for me not to cast any expressions on refereeing. This is, this is completely normal. And it's interesting, say, in French rugby, the home team wins about 70 to 75% of the games because over there, the refer- you're basically, if the, if the referee goes against the local team, they'll probably get bashed to the car park. So... It tends to be a bit more, uh, <laughs> a bit more, um, a bit more home team wins there. But this is this is just the scenario. So, whenever you add finals to a situation, the minor premiership then sort of becomes actually less important. It's not like a league. We love having finals in Australia. It also means the best team doesn't always win the comp. Mm. 
Um, can we go back to the idea of expansion and, and the chaos that ensued when you bring in four new teams at once? We're on record many times on this show of saying that was a mistake, but what is how do how how can you effectively expand like you know what is the best model to to do it in a way that won't cause that upheaval i think one of the things that that's affecting it now when they have expansion is um you know we don't have reserve grade in the way that they used to so you used to be able to take generally you know we have the teams underneath but not a lot of clubs actually use their sort of first grades appropriately so they don't you know if if a if for example you've got a club like um, the Eels, if the Eels lose a lot of their teams, they don't just have a bunch of guys then come up. What they'll then do is they'll then go back to the market and buy a bunch of a whole bunch of other guys. Whereas back then, when you had, if your team, if your club got gutted, you then basically went tended to go back to the well, so to speak, where you had your reserve grade sort of come through into the team. When teams have expanded well, one of the things that they've done is they've generally taken cohorts from other clubs. So the Melbourne Storm had a range of guys, particularly out of Newcastle reserve grade into Hunter Mariners and also some of the Western Reds guys come across together and they started that, they basically started already with more cohesion, for example, than Parramatta had in this season. So on day one of their first game, they were already very well put together. When the Broncos were put together, they were already better built than most of the clubs in the comp because of Queensland, Australia, Wynnum Manley, for example, where um, Wally was and uh, is it Gene Miles? So yeah. they had a whole bunch of guys together coming into the team, which made them so effective. So, you know, they weren't, they, they fundamentally weren't an expansion club. They were just an exp- a, a representational team of, of Queensland in many ways. So when I talk about expansion clubs, of course, generally they're new, but, you know, in this season, the Eels were basically an expansion club again in how they were built or Gold Coast charges were horrendous um, in their, their, you know, one twentieth of where, say, the Storm are now in their cohesion because they basically just gutted their list and started again. When you have expansion, the gutting generally will take place of the weaker clubs. You don't, you know, no one was able to go to Newcastle and take too much of them. Um, you know, they don't, they don't tend to go to the Broncos or the Broncos will reload themselves. They tend to go and pick out the best players of the other clubs. And so what happens in, the, in that scenario is the weak become weaker and it sets those clubs back from trying to rebuild and, and set themselves up. So Canberra is another club in this season that's really well built. Um, the Knights, I've just got them written down here. So, so the North Sydney Bears really were remarkably well constructed during this era. Um, Manly, Newcastle, uh, Brisbane, Canberra, they basically stayed as they were and kept going. And so the more teams you include, the more clubs they have to gut. And so by by taking by adding four, and let's say each of those clubs took one eighth of each of of the, of the sort of of the clubs in difficulty, and so maybe they end up losing six to eight players each. That generally is enough to send a club back to almost having to start again if you lose seven or eight of your of your first graders. And so with Parramatta, we saw basically the opposite of that where so much of the gutting was funneled into this one team. So they had 15 new signings for 1996, which I I, I can't say definitively it's unprecedented, but I can't think of another example. Um, Have you come across any 
comparable examples, you know, in any sport really across your work? So I was looking at um, uh, football last night and I was looking at there's the A-League and then there's the league below that, which is the NPL. And they had um, the the Queensland version of the NPL and John Cosmina last year came in and he's a, you know been a very successful coach, done very well. And I think basically they gutted the entire club of the Brisbane Strikers. Uh, and the outcome of that was they lost the game 10-0 nice. uh, and John lost his job early on and they had two wins for the season and uh, I think they were relegated at the end. Um, wow. But how you react to it is a really important point because if you gut a place and the and the poor performances come, so if you look at that list of eels and you just see it as a bunch of good players, you're like, how on earth could we lose to the South Queensland Crashers, you know, in the first round? That's then generally when the panic sets in if you don't get some good results very, very quickly. And so you either keep playing the same guys or you t- tend to chop and change the team, um, which is where you end up with a bit of panic. And, and uh, you know, fortunately they had uh, the Raiders the next round who at the time I think were bringing just started in Wolford as hooker. So when you change your spine, you tend to start pretty pretty slow and their attack attack was a bit off for, for, her, for, for a while. But the Eels did kept losing and the difficulty is in this season – is they didn't progress. They pretty much started the season. They pretty much finished the season where they started. Almost every club will go forward in the season simply by you have to keep playing some of your players at some point. They keep playing together. And so the whole standard of the league goes up. That's why, for example, in that 2016 season, Cronulla went from 13th to 4th because they kept playing the same guys, even though they lost like four of their first five. So what happens is the whole standard goes up and what it takes to win at the start is far more than what it takes to win at the end. So if you don't improve, what happens is you actually fall further and further behind everybody else. And so that that creates um, its own kind of panic. Now, particularly when you've bought a bunch of superstars, you'll tend to say, well, the problem can't be them, the problem must be us. So you'll tend to keep playing your superstars for a little while, but you'll turn over everybody else. And so whether that's the case with the Eels in this, this season or not, but they didn't, you know, like I said, they I said to you before the show, they didn't underperform. They actually probably won one or two games more than we thought they would, given the data. But how badly they were set up is a good reflection because the crashes at this point were only a year old. So they had no – their numbers were astronomically bad, but they were playing at home against against the Eels. And so that was enough to beat the Eels. That's how bad the numbers for the Eels were. It's funny. Something that stood out to me in what you just said was that that – their season never really improved. They finished basically where they started. And it's really interesting looking at their season because there's no like long streaks of winning, but there's no long streaks of losing either. They were basically a, a 50% team all year. Yeah, and, and what that often comes about is, is it basically comes down to the quality of the team you're up against. So if we talk about those numbers we used before, if, if you were at a, let's say you're at Brisbane and you're at a four, Okay, if you play a team that's at a 0.5, you'll put 50 on them. If you play a team that's at one, you'll put 30 on them. If they're at two, you'll you'll beat them by 15 points. Whereas when you're in the middle or when you're down the bottom, let's say Eels at one stage, I think got to a got to maybe a one by say week 10 or something like that. Well, then if they come up against say the Broncos, the Broncos will smash them. Then they panic. So oftentimes what will happen is the club will become very reactionary, even though they haven't underperformed. They've actually performed to the standard they should have given the state of their opposition. And, and 
the way we look at this is there's this term which is called flat track bullies. You'll have clubs that'll do, and the Eels have tended to fall into this trap over their history, is against poor teams, if they've got great players, they'll do very, very well. But when they then come under significant pressure, and if you think about cohesion manifests self most in defence, is they would just collapse being put under pressure by a well-run spine. And so particularly if, a, you know, when the storm, the storm plays against, you know, poorly put together clubs, they'll just tear them apart. Whereas if you're, if you're say, in this period against the Gold Coast Chargers, they won't, they won't have the, the ability to uh, uh, show up your weaknesses. But those weaknesses are always there. It's just about what you come up against. And you've mentioned the word panic a, a couple of times uh, in reference to the yields. Is this something that is quantifiable? Like, how do you measure that impact? I think generally um, you look at the level of change and when change occurs, when it's not not re- what not required. So oftentimes you might get injuries and injuries will affect cohesion just as much. So for an example, in round six, they lose to Gold Coast charges uh, 27 to 14. The next week, they make five changes. So the difficulty is their numbers, Then they then went down in the quality of their side by, say, 20%. And then the Warriors beat them 28 to 4, which is exactly where they should be. So if they hadn't panicked, let's say, and this is only by our numbers, if they hadn't panicked after losing to the Chargers and they had kept the same team, we probably would say they would only lose by, say, 10 not win the game against the Warriors. They weren't good enough to do that. But then if you then do that again and you do that again and you do that again, eventually you start to catch up on everybody else. That's the difficulty is that it becomes too much about the week, too much about the results, too much about the board and their kind of need or the coach's need for success and all of these pressures, and particularly Parramatta, because they're also trying to chase their former. What was really hanging around their neck, wasn't it, was 86, 87, Mm. those glory years that they're trying to get back what they're not realising is those teams, that team, you know, in 86, we talk about Brisbane being at a four. They were almost at a five back then. Like they were just astronomically well put together, which means they, those guys, in, even in part of that team, in the, it's a 80, you know, four, five, six, those guys had been together losing, but no one remembers that. You know, it wasn't automatic for the deals. They built into that over time. All that anyone remembers is doing the laps after the grand final. And so everyone wants to reachieve that. The, this team was never going to do that. It was never possible. Well, let me put it this way. In the history of rugby league so far, which is now we've measured every game since either 85 or 86, it hasn't happened. Where poorly put together the teams win the comp. It just, they never were able to stretch enough wins together. Well, the funny thing to me in terms of that championship Eels era and the 96 team is that what they did in 96 in many ways represented a a pivot to a different strategy. Dennis Fitzgerald has talked about the fact that they just expected the the local juniors to keep coming through and then they didn't and suddenly you're left with a team where all the all the old champions are gone. The local talent you've developed isn't up to scratch. And so ninety six comes and, and they kind of go the complete opposite way with with you know bringing in superstars and you know building from the outside, um, so I, I guess that says something to me about change management and how you adapt to a, a champion team, you know, retiring or, or moving on. I, I think one 
when you're in that winning mode, you just tend to think to yourself, just one more year. So they tend to hold that group and they overhold it. They hold it too long. And so what it then means, you tend to fall off a cliff. Same thing happened, say, Brisbane Lions in 04. You know, they just want to, okay, we'll just do one more title because we're frustrated at not getting it back or whatever. So so the thing for Dennis, though, is that this we call this thing the, the sort of cohesion gap is that when you have an unbelievably good team, you then want the next kids who come in to be able to perform that way straight away. And you forget how bad, say, a Sterling was or a Ray Price were when they first started. They weren't automatically superstars straight off the bat. So Parramatta never even got close to, they've never been close to the numbers they had in the mid-80s by a country mile. They haven't even been within within 25% of it. They've always pulled up short before they actually gave themselves a chance to build themselves into something. And the more stable your team is, you know, if you went into the 82, 83 Eels, you're starting the rest of that group was already so well put together. It was easy for a kid to come into because everyone just knew, knew their job. Whereas when the team's in chaos by 91, 92, it's really hard for young players to come in. What we found is the ability of young players to come into a team and perform well is more based on the stability of the team that they're coming into than their own individual ability. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So he's just misjudging those kids coming through that the area is not producing. Manchester United said the same thing. Manchester United said, we're not producing any more kids anymore, so therefore we have to buy. But what had happened was their team had destabilised so much that the kids coming in were never going to be able to perform to the same standard as the kids who came in previously because the team was so well built. And then with the Eels in particular, you've got the the next Sterling effect where you know we're 30 years on from his retirement and any player who gets handed that seven jersey like automatically gets dubbed, you know, the next Sterling or the quest continues. Is this the next Sterling? And I, I don't know how a young player could possibly hope to overcome that. I think we saw the, the terrible effects that had in Newcastle. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it's becoming the next Joey Johns. And I think you've just got to, you're never going to replace, you're never going to be able to replace that kid individually. You have to replace them in the collective and a superstar will come as, out as a product of that but you, you can't ever think it's going to be the same again because it's not. So you you if you build the club right, it will produce the talent over time. Well, going back to the, the 1996 season, you mentioned panic and the, the chopping and changing of the teams. There's also a couple of reasons where that is out of a team's hands uh, in terms of the rep season and injuries. And Par- Parramatta in particular had quite a few injuries over the year, which meant they couldn't really get their best team on the field all that often. And it, it seems that that's like almost terminal for a, a season uh, for, for any team. Like it's hard to think of any team overcoming significant injury tolls. Yeah, I, I think you've got to be an extraordinarily well-built club to be able to deal with that. And it's really only the top echelons of clubs that have their 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 things well put together you know, the Storm have an incredible ability to perform quite well during state of origin period. Is it that, you know, because because when you're first grade stable, your reserve grade also is stable by default as well. So if you're a, if you're a second grade coach at, say, the Eels during this time, you'd be tearing your hair out because it's like I lost my seven players again because mm. they constantly turnover. So then it tends to basically infect the whole club from the top down. 
So, yeah, you, you really have to be extraordinarily well built to overcome this. And basically, they don't. But what the smart clubs do is realize that and they go, okay, this is a write off. We, we just let it, we let it run and then we go through. What some clubs will do, and I was looking at this the other day, particularly in, um, you know, in, in 2012, I think it was, West Tigers had 16 different spines in 24 games. And their, you know, their season went to pot. And at the end of it, Sheens was fired. But was that this, you know, they didn't underperform by our numbers, but they certainly decided that there was time to move that person on. So then when you then make more change, then more change comes with it, new coach, whatever. So it's like not panicking when that kind of uh, scenario takes place. I don't know if you've uh, spent any time looking at the Roosters this year, but it, it seems pretty incredible what they've managed to do. With It, it seems every week they suffer a, another season-ending injury and, and they just keep rolling on. Yeah, they have, but, but they've, they've had some, you know, they've had some heavy losses to the good teams. You know, we talk about that notion of the flat-track bullies. So, so the mm. Roosters, what they've done is they've put away, you know, when they're well-built, so I'm just looking at them now. You know, when when they've been well built, they've they've smashed teams. So they put 40 on Wests. Um, I think Souths put some sort of big scores on them towards the late part of the season. So they're fallible just like everybody else. But they still have, you know, a good team. You know, in the bank, they've been very well built the last couple of years. You know, Roosters are a buy team, but they buy young. They don't buy at age 27. They tend to buy at say 20. And so they're still um, very well constructed. And so they've probably got 20 players they can bring into the team at any one time that are going to help them to be okay. So they don't necessarily fall apart. But beyond that, then when you get into finals, when you get against complete teams, um, that'll tend to, to show itself and they'll fall, but they fall having done very, very well. Mm. And what about the rep season as well? I, I don't know if there's another sport as affected by its representative calendar than you know, the NRL in terms of how clubs can just, a, a winning season will just fall apart due to origin. Players will get injured, you know, all, all that sort of thing. Like how, how, how do you see the rep season in terms of the NRL? It's just makes it so hard because one, it makes the draw more lopsided because you'll get teams before and after origin. Some will use it as a break, some won't. And so it can throw the season out by two or three games. The second part, like you said, is injuries to those guys. We know that the Warriors do best during State of Origin period, so it's a bit of a catch-up for them. So I think during the during this period of time, I, I looked at this a while ago, but it was something like Broncos over about an eight-year period, I think lost like three games outside of Origin period in in this you know in this period of time outside of finals. So that basically, when they were outside of finals, they were indest- they were outside of Origin, they were indestructible. And Origin would actually bring everybody back. So if you want to even things up, it's quite handy. If there's another competition that's affected like this in the world, so European rugby, so English rugby, their season goes from August through to May. But November is, uh, sorry, December, uh, November is gone. They all have to go and play for England. And then January, February is also gone. So they have three months where their senior players are away in over the season out mm. of seven. So that causes huge levels of difficulty um, and so what they tend to do is they tend to have much bigger squads to be able to deal with that. So that's probably a comp that's affected even more. But with Rugby League, hoping to be as fair as it can, it definitely um, affects the season. But it also makes it – so when we went to, to the to last year where we didn't have Origin, the season actually became quite a bit more predictable 
you know, number one versus number two, TWI, you know, won the comp, finished in the grand final, whereas it, it can definitely throw uh, a bit of a spanner in the works having origin. So it's whether you like drama, but it certainly mm. can make things unfair on clubs, definitely make them unfair. And I, I think looking at the Eels in 1996, they had a bunch of players playing origin. They had players, I, I know um, before the interview you mentioned a kind of lag in in terms of the representative season from the year before they had players over at the world cup so can can you speak a bit about that lag and, and whether you think it was a significant factor into Parramatta's season i think it i think it would have been is they had had a number of them particularly if it's the guys who they signed i think we're mentioning for example dimick you know had, had played in that world cup and then comes across because that's the guys you have to get onto the same page now, whether, you know, I know when we looked, for example, at the 2018 season, the Storm were really thrown off because they had guys playing for a whole range of different countries um, and they weren't getting back till say, two weeks before the season started, whereas, say, Wests and Newcastle had most of their squad together from, you know, that's the handy part of being outside of, of the finals is you can start even earlier. So they had almost had months of, uh, of, of a lead-in time ahead into the season. And so the first six weeks tend to get completely thrown out. So with the Eels... The challenge with this is, is because the club was so poorly built, it's hard to tell whether that's affecting their performance or the rep players not being there. But certainly, you know, they weren't, they weren't dressed, they weren't like a, a club where, um, like the Storm, that are built poorly and they're winning, they're losing games they shouldn't. It's, it's hard to tell with them, but it particularly has the impact if the guys are being imported in and are late arrivals. And it was... It was a whole notion of a superstar acquisition of, of this team. Now, the Eels have tried it again since. We could talk about foreign, you know, Anthony Watmo since then. they have, It's not like this was the only time they've ever tried to do that acquisition. What I find strange about it is, is how much talent they have in their system. You know, there was a certain point a couple of years ago where I looked at them and found that for a team that has an unbelievable amount of talent, they almost had none of it from their local area. Mm. Like how can you not be using that? And and I think we can see what Penrith's doing with that right now. And the positive part of that, that is, you know, some of the guys at Penrith have been playing together since they were 12. And that has an impact on performance unquestionably. So the Eels have, have this base. They just have to hopefully learn how to use it over time. And the other thing that affected the Eels was interestingly is that Fitzgerald was a colourful character, unquestionably. And that's that's kind of one way of describing it. But it was his way. And under him, I think they won 54% of their games. Mm. When they then went to a kind of model where it was more of a board and they particularly had limited tenure on their board, in speaking to some of their guys who were kind of CEOs during that time, they were always saying like, well, the, the board always wanted to win inside of their tenure. They always wanted to win within 18 months because they wanted to be able to see that success because they wanted to be responsible for it. So if you're constantly turning over your board, you're never looking beyond that tenure. Whereas what you want is, you know, singular singular criminality is always much better than than well juris, you know, a strong jurisdiction over short termism. You know, the mafia is highly effective. It doesn't mean it's got a good culture, but it actually works because you've got this is how we do business and this is what we're going to do. And that's sort of I'm not saying Fitzgerald was a criminal, but it, it, he it was his way, and that was actually pretty effective. So that's interesting because I know cohesion is, is a big part of, of what you do. So when you look at an idea, 
like cohesion. It's not just the playing group. You're looking at the organisation as a whole. That's always where we start. We start with the board and we work our way down. And we look at, so you look at the board, you look at the structure. You know, for example, is your reserve grade of the club or is it from another organisation? So they might be playing a different way. For example, if you've got another organisation running your reserve grade, um, you know, you look at the Broncos, since they've gone to multiple feeder clubs since since Toowoomba, they haven't won a title. Mm. So that's, you know, it's it's how you build the thing and how it's all, all put together. And then that will also then affect how the club is constructed and then how the talent comes in. And fundamentally, when you get to the coach end, the coach is... The coach can't really control any of these elements. And so once you get to the coach, it's really about the coach being kind of holding the line. But like we said, we can't find any coaches that function above potential. So if you gave if you gave Bellamy this team, he couldn't he couldn't make the finals with this team. But what he would be able to do is to get them competitive because he's a guy who likes to keep his teams stable and he's got faith in that. And so within a couple of years they would start to do well. You look at say what Bennett's done with South. Well, uh, that's interesting because the the coach is is I guess the final moving part here, where you had Ron Hilditch, who had been at the club for a while, hadn't had much success. He goes, and Brian Smith comes in for 1997. Brian Smith, a, a far more accomplished coach, taken teams before to the grand final, took Parramatta to a grand final. So you could say that yes, Brian Smith is just a better coach, but would that extra year, you know, like there was an extra year of the team that was completely new sort of coming together and having the time to build cohesion. So who's to say that Ron Hilditch wouldn't have had a more successful 1997 if he'd stayed? Well, they like, like so they didn't make the grand final 97, obviously. That was Manly Newcastle. Yeah. He didn't make the grand final till 01. 2001, yeah. Yep, against the Newcastle Knights. I remember yep. the game. Was it? Yeah, fantastic. So so there's no evidence with Brian Smith that he overperformed as a coach either. But he was able to, you know, there's a there's a number of different components to this, but if you take a really good team and you buy an amazing team, if you can keep them together for two years, by the end of that second year, you should be pretty competitive. If you can make the finals, you'll be a pretty good shot. If you get them together three years, you can make it. But if you've bought them in, the problem is as soon as they start winning, the players will go, okay, well, now I want to go somewhere else because they'll this is not my club. I'm not from here. Pay me more money. So when one thing we did find, which was interesting, would say, you know, when Penrith won in 03, is a lot of them come from Cronulla, is they came across, they merged the two clubs together. They won in 03, but then over the next four years, they averaged 10th. They sort of fell apart. So when you bring players in from other places, as soon as they start winning, they want to be paid more because it's just not as loyal because it's just not their first club anymore. Whereas if you build it, Internally, I think over the next, if you win a title the next four years, you'll average fifth. So you'll be able to keep that going. So in terms of that, that if you can buy it, you will be able to do it, but it's not sustainable. You can keep them together until you win, but then it tends to fall apart because, you know, there's all different types of loyalties. Well, I'm thinking about that in terms of the the cry that was heard all year in 1996 about Parramatta, that they were trying to win the comp, which on face value is ridiculous because every team's trying to win a comp. But it, it seems that, that there's got to be some kind of sweet spot. If you look at the three most successful teams today, you've got Penrith, 
built on local juniors. You've got Melbourne who are really strong at identifying junior talent. And then they also, you know, famously will cycle through cut rate players from other clubs. Then you've got Roosters, which, you know, are traditionally a buying club. But as you said, they're, they're, they tend to buy younger, and, and but they really attract the top players in the game. So so what what is the sweet spot? The sweet spot is there's a there's a number we use, which is about the, the construction of the team on the game day. And we talked about that, you know, where the ELC started the season at 0.4 and the Broncos are already at four. If you're over two, you're basically capable of winning it. 2.5, you're basically capable of winning it. No one's ever won the comp under 2.5 since 80, 85. Um, and I would hazard as a guess, probably you'd have to go back even further, maybe to 40s. So unless you're built in that way, now you can do that number of ways. You can do it the Roosters way. You can do it the you can do it the Penrith way. You can do it the Melbourne Storm way. But you always have to end up with a team that is capable of winning the get the, the games at the right end of the season. Now, when you do it the the Storm way, which is generally retaining one of the keys and 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 some trading, the key to it is where you trade. So wingers, for example, you know we know that for the Dally M medal, for example, is that the winner of the Dally M uh, positional medal on the wing can do it inside of a year. They can basically change clubs and win it, whereas the average for the guys in the spine is about six or seven years. You have to be at their club for that long in order to win it. It's you know there's other occurrences, but generally it's it's much harder. So when you're also a very stable club, it's easier to bring guys in. So the Storm are very, very stable. Therefore, they'll bring in one or two and it'll work. So if you look at um, you know, the Roosters, when they brought in Kronk, everyone's spine changed that year, but they basically remained stable except for Kronk. By the time they got that spine going, they were good and, and it worked. So it then really comes down to how much you trade and whether it's and where and amongst how many players it is and what positions those players are part of. And if there's a sweet spot, the Eels are a long way away in this particular season from a sweet spot. They would be... They, you know, we, we generally would say that teams will win or lose one or two games within the markers. They would have had to win 16, 17 games against the markers in the season, which has never happened. We've never found a team that's done it before. Um, so it's there, there's a, a number of ways to, to, to build a club that is successful. If you build it from within and you build it from your juniors, there's just more chance you're going to be in that sweet spot much more often. The other thing that I think about a lot with this team is that it laid the foundation for success in 1997, where they finished third. They made preliminary finals, you know, the next year and I, I think the year after that as well. But they they suddenly were a very good team. You get to 2001, where they steamrolled the competition. They were one of the most dominant regular season teams we've seen only to inexplicably lose that grand final. The interesting thing about that grand final team is that basically all the buyers from 1996 had moved on and they had built from within in many ways by, you know, identifying juniors, whether in their own system or, you know, in the bush. So it seems that even though it didn't work with this squad, getting all these players in seems to have laid some foundations for you know strengthening the club and and the organization as a whole do you, do you think that's a fair assessment 
I think the first thing is to understand the context of the 1997 season with the ARL is that there was basically only two clubs that year that were well built and both of them were in the grand final. Mm. So you had two clubs that were great and eight that were just not well built and the Eels were the, the better of those. But sometimes, you know, sometimes success and, and, and continuity comes in from many different angles. So if you're in a poor comp and you're winning games all the time, you're like, man, this works. This team's really, really good. Let's keep doing this. Let's keep this group together. So sometimes being in a weak comp for a year can be really highly effective. I'm looking at, say, you know, the Souths team they played in round, uh, round 20 of that ARL comp. It's just, no offence to Souths, just absolutely awful. And, of course, you had the, the crushes. You had Gold Coast. So they were just – and the other one was North. North were very well built in that year as well. They, that, that, I think, gave them an opportunity, gave them a little bit of momentum. But in terms of um, sometimes sometimes success comes from strange places. So Cronulla, you know, we talk about 16 with them. When they lost those early games, if they could have changed the team, they might, they might have, but they didn't because they were injured. And because they, were, because they didn't change the team, they started winning. And then they found form and then they said, okay, we'll keep that team together. So there's a good example of this in re- that happens in representational football. So in the Football World Cup in 2010, New Zealand uh, made the finals and what's their motto is pray for a miracle from their fans, you know. And they, they made it and they went undefeated through the tournament. Mm. The major limiting factor on that is there's only about 25 professional footballers in New Zealand. They had no one else to choose. So when you have no one else to choose, you have to keep your team stable. But that's not something you're doing on purpose. It's oftentimes the choice that you have that's actually the most dangerous part. So I'm not saying that's particularly the case of the Eels, but sometimes success can come from strange places. But when it does, you then build on something. And then oftentimes part of the problem can be if you play, Eel, let's say, you know, at the moment you played against uh, Storm, Manly and Penrith three weeks in a row, if you're not built right, all three teams will put 50 on you. Not many coaches would survive that. But that doesn't mean the team's underperforming or the coach's underperforming. But if you play, say, uh, Titans and Broncos and another poor club right now, you might win all game, three games by 20 and everyone's feeling good about themselves and then you keep picking the same players and the coach gets, a, gets recontracted. So it's not always the right decisions that actually lead to good decisions. Can you uh, just expand a bit on this idea of of overperformance, like the the kind of measures that you use to go into it and how you define this? Well, we fundamentally don't find any overperformance. We only find performance or underperformance. It's like the idea of somebody trying more than 100%. What we're trying to understand is what is the capacity of a team? So I'll I'll give you an example. Um, One number we use is called TWI and... When we looked at Wayne Bennett's career, for example, uh, so at Canberra, then Brisbane, then St. George, then Newcastle, then back to Brisbane. Statistically, by our numbers, Wayne's Wayne's worst performance were actually his first two clubs because the TWI of those clubs was astronomically high and he didn't quite win as many games as he should have. Maybe he won 95% of the games he should have. Then at St. George and Newcastle, he was at like 97 98% of the games he should have. And then actually at Brisbane, when he went back and at South is actually his best performance so far. 
is he's right on the money in terms of he's winning almost every single game that he should. But they don't tend to win the games they shouldn't. They don't have the overperformance. So you don't have a team at 0.5 winning the comp. And and it's interesting in conversations we've had with him and 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 other people around him is that he talks about how he actually felt like he did his best coaching at Newcastle, mm. whereas the public persona of that is a train wreck, right? Yeah. So what we you know you don't see Bellamy winning State of Origin with the New South Wales team he had. He has the worst record or second worst record in the history of Origin because they would New South Wales was just not built to that point to beat Queensland. They actually did extremely well given what they had and what they were up against. And that's the problem with this is is that then how we judge coaches often gets really thrown off. So you said that this the Eels for this year, they won more games than would have been expected. What it was it just the the new squad? Is is that the major issue that means they, they shouldn't be you know, they, they won more than expected? So we talk about them being plus two. So one of those games was, I think, Canberra in round three, second game of the year. But what we don't know is, for example, was there something going on inside Canberra? We know they had a new hooker, for example. But we would say generally Canberra should have won that game. So generally the overs tends to come by other people underperforming. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Because that, that, you know, we, we've had a year, I think a couple of years ago, the Cowboys dramatically underperformed. We generally find out one in 10 teams are sort of going through that any time. And we... We basically red flag them and say, there's something going on we don't know about. Might be drama behind the scenes, something like that. You just, we just got to leave it and say, right, they're underperforming right now. In terms of, um, you know, when I go through that season, if I just uh, bring it back up. Yeah. yeah, so they played, the first game was against the, uh, the Crushers and particularly both spines had fundamentally never played against each, uh, with each other at all or both teams. Um, and there's one of these numbers we use, which is catastrophic gaps. And both of them were terrible. The numbers out of 105, they were both, you know, in the, the high 60s, whereas the team generally win the comp are in the low, the low teens. Cronulla was already at, at 15 by that point, over in round two. So a lot of the guys must have carried through from the year before. So, so the first loss up, up there definitely uh, went with form. The second game, they beat Canberra down there. That was definitely against the grain. Uh, the third game... Uh, was against Wests, and Wests at, were a middling team. Uh, they lost that 14-18. And then on to Souths. Souths' numbers were uh, equally terrible, um, and the Eels won that. Eels were just um, about had twice the amount of experience. So there's experience, and then there's also the cohesion. So, for example, Penrith Panthers are one of the least experienced co- play- teams in the comp this year in the NRL, but the cohesion of their team is spectacular. Then they had an underperformance against uh, Gold Coast, um, but again their spine was was terrible. Then we move on to the Warriors. The Warriors were much better set up then. They were they were pumped, and the the problem is 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 again even by round eight they actually still have not improved on where they were at the start of the year. So they're still at point four, for example. Um, they play the Crushers at home. They beat them. So some of these are just coming down to home versus away. They were better than the Cowboys, and the Cowboys at that point were also a, a bit of a, um, I don't know what you call it, like a turnstile organisation, people just coming through mm. all the time. They were turning to rugby union players at that point. That's how bad things were. Yeah. Um, uh, they um, they then beat St George, and they, they did uh, very well. They probably should not have won that game. So that's probably the second game where they've overperformed. But again, they're at 0.6. They're nowhere near even middle range of what would have them as a, 
successful team. So North to this point are at two already. Penrith are above them. Um, but you've got other clubs like the Reds who are equally terrible. So there's about eight to ten teams at this point who are just really, really poorly set up. The one thing the Eels do have, though, is experience. And so that does help as almost like a tiebreaker. Uh, they then lose to the Bulldogs, who are much better built than them. And again, they beat Canberra. And it runs against the whole nine yards. They just they put 50 points on Canberra. Everything clicks. Canberra's defensive numbers are quite poor, but not enough. So they should so they should lose that game. So whatever's happening with Canberra at that point, they're not going very well. They then come up against the Broncos. The Broncos beat them. They then come up against North Sydney, who are better than them, and they beat them. I mean, I'm around 15 by now. I can keep going. So then they come up against a really well-put-together side, and Manly put 44 to nil on them. So that's that scenario almost of being that flat-track bully is I'll do well against poor teams, but they just won't get do well against of well-built sides, and Manly was one of those. Uh, I think Manly won the comp that year. Is that right? No, they did, yes. Yep. Uh, then we come to Illawarra. They beat Illawarra. Uh, same numbers, similar numbers to each other. They beat the Reds at home. Again, the Reds are terrible. Um, and that's what actually probably helped a lot is that this side, this Eels team, if they played this year, we would say well, they would almost definitely come last. Mm. But there just isn't that many poorly built clubs anymore. Yep. This bad. Whereas at this point, there was lots of them. Uh, they then drew the Roosters, uh, similar similar numbers. They lose. Oh, they beat um, they beat Newcastle at home. They have... They have Better numbers than Newcastle at this stage. Sorry, worse numbers than Newcastle at this stage. So that's against the grain. There was one game earlier, I think, Gold Coast, where they where they underperformed. So we're still at plus two, I think. They lose to Cronulla, uh, well, a reasonable margin. Uh, they lose to the Sydney Tigers, who are themselves are not very well built. In fact, that's an underperformance by then. Uh, they then come, and again, the numbers have not changed. Round 22, they lose to Penrith. They're not losing by huge margins, and that's the end of the comp. It's too late for them to catch up. If the comp had went 40 rounds, I reckon they could have made the finals. Mm-hmm. It was just there just was not enough time, and the, again the problem was they they weren't necessarily catching up on everybody else as the season went. In fact, if I look at it now, uh, they were second last or last for cohesion at the end of the season. So everyone else had progressed because they had made less changes. And that's the challenge for Hilditch is that Hilditch is trying to to win the games because he's not seeing the performance he wants. Plus the board are probably saying you need to make changes or whatever. The pressure just keeps going um, in order to hopefully, you know, to save your job or, or to get the club back into a good position. But if you don't progress, and I think they lost their last four. Is that right? The last three or four? Last three, yeah. Yeah. I think it was three in a draw. Yep. In the last four games. So it wasn't... By no, and and when I talk about overperformance, underperformance, this is not a reflection on the players at all. Jim Dimmick's working at uh, uh, Gold Coast Titans now as a defensive coach, and I was mentioned to him. We were talking about this season. He just talked about how hard it was, and he kind of understood our sort of explained the theories about cohesion, and it's like okay, that makes a lot of sense in terms of that year. Part of the problem is the expectations. Is the expectations of people publicly? With I think there was a photo of all of the superstars. They'd signed for that year in a line or something like that and saying, this is the team. You know, expectations got Seabold. You know, they put him on the front page of the, you know, Brisbane newspaper saying, yeah, this guy's yeah. going to win the comp. You know, it's like that was just not going to happen um, unless unless something against the grain occurred, certainly within the first couple of years. 
Um, and the other part is, is there's a term called attribution bias or what they call the Bayern Munich mirage or the Melbourne Storm mirage, which is just because a player is playing somewhere else very, very well does not mean he's going to perform well for you because it's a completely different scenario. If you look at Kieran Foran at Manly and then you take him to Parramatta or you take him to the Warriors, it's almost like he's a different person. Put him back into Manly again with DCE and all of a sudden he's back on fire. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a famous case in rugby, which is the owner of Toulon demanded a blood test to test the DNA of the All Black that he bought because it wasn't the one he saw on television because <laughs> he was feeling that badly. Yeah. So attribution bias is we over-attribute the performance of the person to the individual and not to the situation. So you look at Lockyer's first test was not great. You look at when Cherry Evans played for Queensland, you know, a couple of years ago, it was, it was awful. But then Munster comes in with all of the other Melbourne Storm players, they, they win by 50 and he gets them out of the match. Munster's not that much better than Cherry Evans, if at all. But this, and, and, you know, you look at how Cherry Evans plays for Manly right now, it's going great. But we just say, well, he doesn't care about origin. He doesn't care about, it's not really about that. It's just the context of understanding the systems, understanding the other guys. Of course, you're going to, you're going to hit the marks much better with people you know and, and a system that you understand. So basically we've, we've gone an hour of getting to the point that it was, it was doomed from the start, basically, and, and Paramount had no hope in 1996. Is that a fair assessment? It would have required a lot of, a lot of things to go right. You know, we talk in, in statistics about the, the Swiss cheese and you have to line up all the holes. In order for them to win the comp that year, they would have had to take the team that they chose at the start and basically not change it and not change it through losing. Mm. And then hopefully at some point, then start to overcome teams. And, and I've seen teams do this. You know, that was that, was that Cronulla scenario, except the Cronulla started from a lot further forward. But given the state of this comp, how many uncohesive teams there were, it was actually possible that they could have back-ended more and they could have won four or five of those games. But the problem was, the problem is early in the season, you're not thinking on building combinations for later in the year. You're just thinking, I need to win today. So if they wanted to take that view, they could say, okay, I'm going to build combinations in this team so that we can start to win games towards the back half. They could have then made the finals and then being a Sydney-based team, they could have lined up and maybe maybe jagged it. Um, and you hope for a huge amount of luck and you hope for interstate clubs you're up against and you hope for... Um, something to go right. But there was teams that like Wests, Wests weren't beautifully put together. They're at 1.3 in the finals because there weren't that many great teams. And so if they played Wests in that first game, they would have, they would have won that game. If they played St. George or the Roosters, if they'd, if they'd remained stable enough, they could have beaten them. They couldn't have beaten uh, probably Cronulla. They couldn't have beaten Brisbane. They couldn't have beaten North and they couldn't have beaten Manly. So then what you've got to hope for is injuries, large amounts of injuries, <laughs> to the guys in the right position. You look at Storm when they lost Cameron Smith. It's the 08, 08 grand final against Manly. Manly put 40 on them. It just yeah. derailed them. So that's that's how you can do it is you can then hope for an injury, you know, maybe a poisoning, something like that. You kind of just got to line everything up. Or you've got to hope they play badly against one of your opposition and they get taken out by another team. And so then it becomes just you've just got to line up all the holes. And so their window for success in that year was possible but it's like rolling five sixes in a row. And the problem is, is that that has happened. You know, Wests, 
05, you know, Cronulla 16. And the problem is you can't, you can't recapture that. You're never going to get that amount of luck again. And so for those clubs, they think, oh, if we just do that again, we're fine. You can't do that. You've mm. actually got to build yourself right so that you could, you could win it no matter what, no matter what the windows open up, that you actually give yourself an opportunity to win all the time. And so that's what the really good clubs do. Wow. Uh, very interesting stuff. So this, this has been brilliant, Ben. Thanks so much for joining me and, and, and sharing your insight. It's an absolute pleasure. I just, I just want Newcastle to win again. That's all I need in my life right now. Well, and, uh, <laughs> well, well, how far off that are we? Have you crunched the numbers? Um, it's, 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 get, it's gotten better. I think it's taken too long to get better. It shouldn't have taken 17 years to kind of get back to that yeah. point. But um, certainly I, I think they're aware of a lot of these kind of components and they've, they've done some good things. They're getting, you know, things organised off the, off the field. You know, my mate Steve Crow often talks about, you know, when they were even the year they were winning grand finals, they still wanted to sell T-shirts to, you know, keep the club together. Yeah. So it's, you know, Newcastle got a lot of things right off the paddock, but I just think the people of of Newcastle they deserve two things: they they need a Joey statue, and they need a uh, they need a, another premiership from the Knights. <laughs> I'll get behind both of those ideas. So for any any Para fans listening, I, I hope. You do it this year, and then next year, let's let's see the, the Knights win the comp. That'd be great. Fantastic. All right. Uh, thanks so much, Ben. Pleasure. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.